Chantal Beyer is a 24-year-old woman from South Africa, and she was staying at um, one of those hotels and nature reserves in South Africa, about 25 miles from Johannesburg. And that particular reserve advertises that it can give its guests the ideal opportunity to game view, with rhinos in particular listed among the animals that can be sighted at close range. Um, along with hippos, cape buffaloes, giraffes, and such. The game park owner had reportedly told a group of visitors that it was safe to get out of the safari vehicle to take photos and even used food to coax the rhinos closer. As the game park owner was snapping their pictures, he advised Chantal to stand just a little bit closer seconds before the attack. Photos show Bayer and her husband only feet away from the two rhinos. The newspaper said that just after the photo was snapped, the rhino attacked and its horn penetrated Mrs. Bayer's chest from behind, resulting in a collapsed lung and broken ribs. Mercifully, she survived. The hotel and nature reserve that were part of this, where the incident took place, declined to comment. Now, some of you are thinking, what a terrible story to start a sermon with. <laughs> children in the room. Um, you know, I, I, I chose this because my fear is that this is what we do with our sin. We, we domesticate it. We tell ourselves that it's safe. And you can get just a little bit closer. And uh, I hope and I pray that I have not been that guide to you. The prophet Ezekiel warns me with these words. He says, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, speak to your people. And say to them, if I bring the sword upon a land, and the people of the land take a man from among them, and make him their watchman, and if he sees the sword coming upon the land, and blows the trumpet, and warns the people, then if anyone who hears the sound of the trumpet does not take warning, and the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be upon his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet. He did not take warning. His blood shall be upon himself. But if he had taken warning, he would have saved his life. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet so that the people are not warned, and the sword comes and takes any one of them, that person is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at the watchman's hand. It's one of the most sobering passages in the Old Testament for people who do what I do. And so, today, as a watchman, I am bringing to you a word of warning. Your sin is not harmless. It is not a safe photo op for you or for the people that you love. 
it can and it will deeply affect your ability to draw near to God. And it can bring the greatest sorrow to your family and to this church. There is only one thing to do with your sin. To repent and to run to God as though your life and the life of those you love depends upon it. There's only one thing to do with that temptation that you have been recently turning over and over and over in your mind. Flee and run to God for your protection. And I want you to see with clarity that that is the central urging of the passage of Scripture in Joshua chapter 7 and 8 today that we're going to look at together. That's, that's what God is asking of you. That's what He's inviting you to today. Because um, I want you to fix your mind on that because uh, this passage in particular is a bit of a distracting minefield. There's a lot of really important questions that we're going to have to address briefly um, but the main point is that, right? That God is inviting you to turn from your sin today. And so if you'll turn in your Bibles to Joshua chapter 7 and 8, Lord willing, we'll, we'll get through both of those today. Um, I'll pray for us, okay? God, we need, we need mercy more than, more than we know. So help us know better today. Take this word and show us your mercy alongside your holiness and uh, peel off the foolishness with which we look at our own sin and help us to see it well and so, so that we might turn from it even this day, even this hour. So Lord, do have mercy on us. We ask this in your name. Amen. All right, well, to catch you up in the book of Joshua, right? So far, um, after wandering the desert for decades, they've at last, God's people have at last crossed the River Jordan. They are in the promised land. And uh, the land of Canaan. And things are going well. They've had this awesome victory um, at Jericho, that God gave to them when the walls uh, fell in, as Carson taught us a couple of weeks ago. Chapter 6 is the Jericho story. It ends with this statement. So the Lord was with Joshua, who was leading the people. And his fame was in all the land. But then if you go one more verse, there's this sorrowful contrast. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things for Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, uh, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. So, spoiler alert, right? Achan did it. He's the one. 
And I'm going to call him Achan today because Achan sounds too much like the seminary president. So we're going to call him Achan and be safe um, in that regard. Watch, I'll have some kind of horrible Freudian lapse in the middle of that and call him that other name, right? Um, but there's some splaining that needs to be done right out of the the, the box here as we think about this passage. First, what are the devoted things that, that he sinned uh, regarding? Um, devoted things uh, are things or persons given over to the Lord, devoted to the Lord. Um, often military uh, plunder and it's been given over to the Lord sometimes by its destruction as an offering just up to the Lord. These things were forbidden for common use, but rather were to be an offering exclusively to the Lord. So clearly then, these are things that are set aside for God and not for personal acquisition, okay? the devoted things. There's a second question that comes up here, and that's, what's up with God burning with anger towards his people? Right? Isn't, maybe this is just kind of a, some people will say, this is just kind of an Old Testament thing. This is an Old Testament God thing. Now he's nice. It's an Old Testament thing. The answer to that briefly is no, it's not an Old Testament thing. Uh, Listen to the New Testament. Romans chapter 2 says, Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Again, Romans is in the New Testament. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury, so says the New Testament. So no, it's not just an Old Testament thing. It's not even just a New Testament thing. It's a future impending thing. It's a judgment that waits for the self-seeking and the disobedient. You might be thinking, well, we sing that song, the wrath of God has been satisfied, right? So, Surely God won't get angry at his own people. More importantly, surely he won't get angry at me, will he? Um, And the best answer to that question is probably yes and no. Um, Let me see if I can explain it. Uh, There is a kind of anger that the Bible refers to often with the language of God's wrath. And it, it, it's often referred to in the Bible. That wrath leads to destruction. It is not redemptive. It is not restorative. It is destructive. Um, and it is this wrath 
that Jesus has rescued us from when we place our trust wholly in him. Look at this. This is one of many beautiful statements in the New Testament, 1 Thessalonians 1. To wait, we're waiting for his son, for God's son from heaven, Jesus, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come, the best of news. Okay? In Christ, we are rescued from a future wrath. But I don't think that in light of that, we should say that God is somehow indifferent to our sin or that he's unaffected by it, like some smiling, benevolent, indifferent grandfather, right? Here's some examples to think about. Back in the Old Testament, 2 Samuel 11, um, David got involved with a woman, not his wife, in all kinds of trouble. Um, when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house. She became his wife, bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. It affected the Lord. It displeased the Lord. You look in the New Testament, in Ephesians chapter 4, we are called commanded not to grieve the Holy Spirit. There, our sin grieves God. God is displeased. He's grieved by the sins of his people. Even Jesus became indignant with his own disciples. Okay. So I was helped by Pastor John MacArthur who explains this difference between God's future wrath and the effect our sin has on him presently. This is how he explains it. Um, see if it helps you. The answer is that divine forgiveness, he says, has two aspects. One is the judicial forgiveness God grants as a judge. It's the forgiveness God purchased for you by Christ's atonement for your sin. That kind of forgiveness frees you from any threat of eternal condemnation. It's the forgiveness of justification. Such pardon is immediately complete. You'll, you'll never need to seek it again. He said the other is a parental forgiveness God grants you as your father. He is grieved when his children sin. The forgiveness of justification takes care of judicial guilt, but it does not nullify his fatherly displeasure over your sin. He chastens those whom he loves for their good, Hebrews says. Judicial forgiveness frees us from the condemnation of the righteous, omniscient judge whom we have wronged. Parental forgiveness sets things right with a grieving and displeased but loving father. So the forgiveness Christians are supposed to seek in their daily walk is not pardon from an angry judge, but mercy from a grieved father. We could add that, that the future wrath is destructive, but God's present displeasure, even his indignation, his anger with us now is restorative. And all of that to say that in this passage we are looking at, we are looking at that second kind of God's anger, his restorative anger. You'll see it play out that way in the life of God's people. So, in verse 1, the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. It's restorative in their lives. And it has something very important to say to us about how God um, deals with us and how our sin affects our experience of our relationship with our Heavenly Father. This business of sin, it really is serious business, friends. Um, verse 2, Joshua sent men from Jericho to A, which is near Beth-Avon, which is east of Bethel, and said to them, go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out A. 
And they returned to Joshua and said to him, do not have all the people go up, but let about two or 3,000 men go up and attack Ai. And uh, do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. And so already, what we are seeing, I think, is that Achan's, or Achan's secret sin, I knew that would happen, Achan's secret sin, right, um, is starting to permeate God's people and have effect upon them. Something's amiss here, already. Uh, if you com- compare it with their previous battle plan against Jericho, just a page earlier in your Bible, Joshua here, he's much more passive. And far more troubling, God isn't even mentioned here in their planning. Um, you know, the ark that represents God's presence amongst his people it isn't even mentioned. In, in Jericho, that battle where they, you know, they circled the city, the ark, they followed the ark. The ark was central. It's not even mentioned here until Joshua's prayer of repentance in verse 6. And as a result, as you can imagine, things do not go well. Look at verse 4. So about 3,000 men went up from there from the people, and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Shebarim and struck them at the descent, and the hearts of the people melted and became as water. And that, that phrase, their hearts melted and became as water, that, that might sound familiar to you. That's what Rahab said about the Canaanites before Israel's God. And now Israel is experiencing that before the pagan Canaanites. Something has gone terribly wrong here. Watch how Joshua responds in verse 6. He says, Joshua tore his clothes, fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until evening. He and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Would that we have been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. What will you do for your great name? Joshua's His example is really stellar in some ways here. First thing he does is to repent. It's immediate and it's exemplary. Um, And if in the middle of it, if he sounds a little grumbly, a little whiny like the people who wanted to go back to Egypt, just understand he does not know yet what we know. Right? We had a spoiler alert early. He does not know that it's a Han sin that's underneath this. Um... But God knows. God knows the source of their defeat. And the next thing he does is he lets Joshua in on it. Here's God's response. The Lord said to Joshua, verse 10, Get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted 
They have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Get up, consecrate the people, and say, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, there are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. So, don't miss it there in in the 12th verse, right? The unthinkable, the unbearable has happened to God's people. God is not with them. At least not as he was before. And he is threatening to not be with them in the future. And this is huge for them. If God is not with them, they have no hope. And this morning I wonder, is that huge to you? If your sin removed God's blessing from your life in some way, Would that matter to you? How much would that matter to you? Would you fall to the earth and tear your clothes and pour dirt on your head in mourning because this would be so completely unbearable to you? You should. If you could see all All that happens as a result of the sin that you cherish, you should. They call it the ripple effect, right? You throw a rock in a pond and it just goes forever. One very unofficial estimate, some uh, amateur physicist tried to sort this out, right? He estimated that if you threw a three-quarter inch rock in a very placid lake, that one little little pebble would have an effect about two football fields out from where it went in. And in a way that we don't fully grasp, this one man's sin affects so many others. I mean, 36 lives were lost because of his greed. So make no mistake about it, our sin affects others in ways that we cannot envision, even as it affects our own communion with God. You know, guys, 1 Peter 3 says, if you don't treat your wife with honor, God will not hear your prayers. If your sin hindered your prayers. How much would that matter to you? Because it does. Verse 14, in the morning, therefore, Joshua says, you shall be brought near by your tribes, and the tribe that the Lord takes by lot shall come near by clans, and the clan that the Lord takes shall come near by households, and the household that the Lord takes shall come near man by man, and he who is taken with the devoted thing shall be burned with fire, he and all that he has, 
because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord and because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. And Ahan's secret sin is now about to be fully exposed, right? Verse 16, Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel near tribe by tribe, and the tribe of Judah was taken. And he brought near the clans of Judah, and the clan of the Zerahites was taken. And he brought near the clan of the Zerahites, man by man, and Zabdi was taken. And he brought near his household, man by man, and Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, tribe of Judah, was taken. And Joshua said to Achan, my son, give glory to the Lord of Israel and give praise to him. And tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua, truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and took them and see they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. And by, by divine revelation, Achan's secret sin has been brought to light and everyone knows. But it was really never secret at all, was it? Because God knew. God always knows. The psalmist teaches us again and again. Psalm 69, oh God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. Psalm 44 is very similar. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. And again in Psalm 90, you have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. So a long time ago, I, I bought a drink, like juice kind of drink. And uh, it was this, it was, uh, have you heard of Mystic? It's kind of some kind of drink, juice drink or something. But they did this thing. I, I flipped the cap over, and this is what the cap said. <laughs> that was weird. <laughs> kind of creepy. And a little bit terrifying. I saw what you did under the cap of some random drink that I bought. I still have the cap to my office. That's, that's the actual cap. I took pictures of it to bring them in here for you this morning so you'd see it. I saw what you did. And the reality is, that is always truly true of God. He always sees. You don't have any secret sins. There is no such thing. So, Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent, and behold, it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath, and they took them out of the tent and brought them to Joshua and to all the people of Israel, and they laid them down before the Lord. And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, and the silver, and the cloak, and the bar of gold, and his sons and daughters, and his oxen, and donkeys, and sheep, and his tent, and all that he had, and they brought them up to the valley of Echor, which means trouble. And Joshua said, why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. 
And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. And then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor, the Valley of Trouble. And again, this raises more uh, troubling questions, doesn't it? So, why no mercy for Achan? I mean, he confessed his sin, didn't he? Right? I have sinned against the Lord, and he came clean. Well, the short answer is this, in my opinion. Forced repentance is no repentance at all. The Apostle Paul writes about false repentance. He says that, Uh, Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Did you ever wonder why God went through such an elaborate process to identify Achan? He already knew, right? The tribe and the clan and the household and then Achan. Could it be that God was giving him a chance to come clean? But there's an even more troubling question, and this is about Achan's family. Why would they suffer for Achan's sin? I mean, Deuteronomy prohibits this. Deuteronomy 24 says, Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children. Nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. So what's up with the sons and daughters being put to death? And there's been a number of helpful answers put forward to a really troubling question like this. But perhaps the simplest and most helpful one is to consider the possibility that when the account speaks of his sons and daughters, it doesn't mean infants. It means perhaps, it could mean people old enough, sons and daughters old enough to be held accountable for the actions and maybe they were in on their father's scheme. If someone dug a hole under your tent and buried treasure there, there's a good possibility that you might be aware. You might even be complicit. So they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day and the Lord turned from his burning anger, in verse 26. By addressing the sin in their midst, God's anger is assuaged. Perhaps Pastor John Calvin was on to something when he wrote, he who in the end profits by God's scourges is the man who considers God angry at his vices, but merciful and kindly towards himself. But there may be even a bigger question here than is there mercy for Achan or why was it withheld from his family? The question really is will there be mercy for me? And and the answer is yes. Yes. Yes, there is mercy for you. 
If you will trust Christ to be your sin bearer, he bears that future judicial wrath of God for you. You will never face it. Listen again to the, to the book of Romans, which says, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Yes, yes, come to Jesus, trust in him, and you will find a grace greater than your sin that delivers you from the wrath of God. We are promised that. And the answer is yes, too, for those of us who name the name of Christ, who call ourselves Christian. There's mercy for our sins, too. John writes, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So, so you who name Christ, come to him and find grace. Confess your sin and you will find grace. We're promised it that is greater than our sin. And it's this grace that's now extended to the people of Israel in the opening verses of chapter 8. The Lord said to Joshua, do not fear, do not be dismayed. That's good news. Because they were terrified. And they were seriously dismayed. And God says, do not fear. Do not be dismayed. Take all the fighting men with you and arise. Go back up to A. Okay. See, I have given into your hand the king of A and his people, his city and his land. And you shall do to A and its king as you did to Jericho and its king, only its spoil and its livestock, you shall take as plunder for yourselves. Lay an ambush against the city behind it. And so once they have dealt with the sin in their midst, God extends mercy and hope to them with the assurance that he will be with them in power again. And over and over and over, God assures them that in this kind of do-over of the battle of A. He'll be with them. He'll be with them, and the outcome will be very different the second time they go to fight this battle. In verse 1, he says, See, I have given into your hand the king of A. Verse 7, Joshua repeats that. You shall rise up from the ambush and seize the city, for the Lord your God will give it into your hand. Down in verse 18, the Lord said to Joshua, Stretch out the javelin that's in your hand towards A, for I will give it into your hand. As it was at Jericho, though admittedly by a very different strategy this time, God is once again with his people and is fighting for them. It's just an interesting thing. Do you notice that it said that this time they could take plunder? It's real interesting. Um, Prof Professor David Howard points out, he says, Ironically and tragically for Achan, God allowed the Israelites to take booty in the next victory at the second battle of Ai. Achan could have had anything he wanted if he'd only waited for God. Like Adam and Eve, he lost sight of the character of our generous God and thought that satisfaction required taking. Achan's greed was his downfall. 
And so as the chapter unfolds, you can read it all later, an ambush is plotted at God's directive and his timing, and a total victory is won. Total victory. Verse 22. The others came out from the city against them, so they were in the midst of Israel, some on this side and some on that side. And Israel struck them down until there was none left that survived or escaped. Verse 25. All who fell that day, both men and women, were 12,000, all the people of Ai. But Joshua did not draw back his hand with which he stretched out the javelin until he had devoted all the inhabitants of Ai to destruction. So, more problems, right? Everybody? Men and women? What about children? Um, This is a recurring issue in the conquest of the promised land um, in books like Joshua, right? Keeps coming up. Uh, Atheists like Richard Dawkins say that our God is propagating genocide. And um, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a word, it's an it's a accusation worth answering. We don't have a lot of time to, to address it this morning. We'll talk more about it, I'm sure, as we go along. But let me give you one insight that helps deal with, differentiate between what's going on here and, and, and the accusation of genocide, right? Um, there's a guy named Joshua Ryan Butler who's written a book on some of these matters. And he says, the cities that Israel takes out are military strongholds not civilian population centers. Say the word city today, and most of us think of urban centers flooded with civilians. I live in the heart of Portland, a modern metropolitan city, he says. When I walk outside my front door, I see houses, restaurants, businesses, hospitals, and schools. It's thus not surprising that when I come across Israel taking out a city like Jericho, the first image that comes to mind is a civilian population center. But he says, in the ancient Middle East, things were different. The Old Testament word for city would have, to Israel's ears, conjured up images of a fortified military garrison. Cities were frequently military outposts that defended the roads leading up to where the people were. He says, think of the Great Wall of China as a military defense against invasion. This is where the soldiers were, not where the people lived. Women, children, and other civilians were in the towns and villages of the surrounding countryside, looking to the cities for military protection. A city having no survivors is not a picture of a civilian massacre, but the taking over of a military stronghold. Civilians were not targeted. Combatants were. So he is saying that A and Jericho and the like were more like forts than cities. They did not have large civilian populations. And that's one important distinguishment between what the accusations are made about the way our God deals with innocence and what is actually taking place here. A lot more could be said. Maybe we'll talk more as we go through through Joshua. But our passage closes this way in verse 30. At that time, Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, on Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel, as it is written in the book of the Law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones upon which no man has wielded an iron tool. And they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. And there, in the presence of the people of of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. And all Israel, sojourner as well as native-born, with their elders and officers and their judges, stood on opposite sides of the ark, 
before the Levitical priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, half of them in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded at the first to bless the people of Israel. And afterward, he read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law. And there was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before the, all the assembly of Israel and the women and the little ones and the sojourners who lived among them. So, to close out this section, Joshua does essentially three things. He builds an altar and he leads the people in offering sacrifices uh, for their sin. Second, he writes down a copy of the law of Moses, especially this section about blessing and cursing. And then he reads, thirdly, he reads it all to the people once again, and he leads them to obey it. There's a consistent emphasis that what is being done here is in obedience to God's word. So essentially, after the people allowed sin into their midst, that led to this terrifying initial defeat at A, Joshua now leads them in a kind of spiritual reset of sorts, right? Even the place this takes place, it says, is an act of obedience to the law of Moses that is being read. The people worship and they repent of their sins when they offer their sacrifices and they place themselves once again under God's word. It's a spiritual reset after, after uh, sin had invaded their midst. And so, this morning, just in closing, do you need that? Are you at a place where you need a spiritual reset? Where stuff has gotten into your world and taken hold of your heart and you need to be free? Maybe something that nobody else even knows. It's interesting, there was a study that found that the average person is holding on to 13 secrets. 13. Five of which they've never told a single living soul. And it says it's not just the secret itself that will haunt you. It's all the mental energy you spend thinking about it. New research shows that some people actually feel physically heavier when they're burdened with a secret. And that extra weight can skew how you navigate your surroundings. So when participants in the study were asked to judge the slope of a hill or the length of a distance, those who were preoccupied with keeping secrets judged the hills as steeper and the distances as longer than they really were. Michael Slepian, who's a professor at Columbia Business School, told The Atlantic, we found that when people were thinking about their secrets, they actually acted as if they were burdened by a physical weight. And so today, God, in his mercy, through this story, is offering you the reset of grace for your sin. It's for you. It's why you're here. So you can be free, forgiven, grace. Okay. You know, the shame is in keeping your sin, not in repenting of it. Don't keep it. Do you have sin today that you need to deal with? You know you need to deal with it. God's pressing you right now to the point where you wish you'd played sick, okay? 
God is pushing you. You know what it is. Maybe it's a secret sin. I want you to remember the ripples, they're spreading far and wide from this. It is affecting your relationship with God. It could have a devastating effect on the people that you care about most, on your family, and on this church. And the scriptures, God in his kindness urges us to confess our sins to one another and pray for one another in James that we may be healed. What waits for you when you confess your sin? Healing. Proverbs says, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find mercy. So what happens if you confess your sin today? Healing and mercy. That's God's promise to you. So, again, our leaders are available during this closing song that the worship team's um, about to lead us in. And we would be happy to pray with you. Our elders will be down here and some of our women's ministry leaders will be down here just to hear what it is that you would like them to pray for you about. Okay. And so again, the shame is not in, in the coming, it is in the keeping. And you're probably here with somebody you trust, someone in your small groups here, maybe your small group leaders here, you, your family is here with you, you have a friend uh, sitting near you or across the room, and it's, it is perfectly acceptable, it'd be good for you to walk across the room and say, hey, this, just, will you pray for me? I mean, if you can't get it out now, say, we'll talk later, but I wanted to get it on your radar. Would you just pray, pray for me, uh, for God's mercy on my life? And uh, so, the big thing, though, is don't delay. Postponing makes sin harder to forsake, not easier. It'll always get harder. And the ripples get bigger. So, so stand with me. Let's worship our God with our voices and as we turn from our sin together.